Good morning. Good morning. I'm Carla Albrecht, and I'm going to be teaching for Tim today. He's in Birmingham teaching today. I'm going to be depending heavily upon your contribution this morning. <laughs> our, our lesson today is about justification by faith alone. This is a topic that's been very much de- debated for many years in Adventism as well as other denominations. So we're going to have an interesting discussion today. Someone want to volunteer to read our memory text? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I thought about this memory verse this week, and I thought, I wonder how God gets a person from the place where they're living a selfish life, a fearful life, a life outside of his boundaries and away from him, to the place where they can actually be described by this memory verse. And I guess that would be the process that we're going to be talking about today, that justification process. A place where God brings you from being away from him and not understanding him to the place where you can actually say, like Paul, um, I've, been, I've been crucified with Christ. Self is dying. And the life that I'm now living, I'm living by faith in the Son of God. That is a, that's a big step that God brings us from one place to the other. And we're going to talk today about how that happens. Let's look at the second paragraph on, on Sabbath's lessons. It begins, um, what did Paul actually say? Would someone read that for me? What did Paul actually say to Peter? On that tense occasion, in this week's lesson, we will study what is likely a summary of what went on. This passage contains some of the most compressed wording in the New Testament, and it is extremely significant because it introduces us for the first time to several words and phrases that are foundational, both to understanding the gospel and to the rest of Paul's letter to the Galatians. These key words include justification, righteousness, works of law, belief, and not only faith, but even the faith of Jesus. So we have some very key words there. And when we're speaking about justification, I think it's important for us to have in mind something that Ellen White wrote um, a long time ago about what she saw about justification. You'll find that on Friday's lesson. I just want to look at this paragraph here. The danger has been presented to me again and again of entertaining as a people false ideas of justification, of justification by faith. I have been shown for years that Satan would work in a special manner to confuse the mind on this point. The law of God has been largely dwelt upon and has been presented to congregations almost as destitute of the knowledge of Jesus Christ and his revelation to the and his revelation to the law as was the offering of Cain or his relation to the law I'm sorry I have been shown that many have been kept from the faith because of the mixed confused ideas of salvation because the ministers have worked in a wrong manner to reach hearts 
The point that has been urged upon my mind for years is the imputed righteousness of Christ. And then she goes on to say, There is not a point that needs to be dwelt upon more earnestly, repeatedly, more, repeated more frequently, or established more firmly in the minds of all than the impossibility of fallen man meriting anything by his own best good works. Salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Why do you think that Satan would have that special attack on justification by faith? And, and why do you think that that confusion in the minds on this very topic would cause many people to, to not come to Christ? That it would be the, the means that Satan would use to keep them away from Christ? It's only through Christ that we are truly healed. We can be deceived into thinking we can be, if not healed, at least made right with God through our own works. But that's not true heart healing. That's not allowing God to write his law on our hearts. It's only through Christ that that can happen. And if Satan can throw any distraction that gets in the way of us making that choice, then he has accomplished his task. Yeah. Well, if we can confuse us on that point, that we don't have to keep the law, you know, or, or we have to keep the law in order to have justification, and we and we can't do it, and we fail, and so we just give up, and and in that way we we're not obeying at all, and we're we're losing out on salvation. Let's look at Sunday's lesson. It's called the question of justification. When you think of the word justification, what do you think? What what is your understanding of the whole justification process? Being put right with Christ. Being put right with Christ. So it has has more to do with something that happens inside of us. Or is it some, our lesson here talks about a courtroom. I think it's on this page here. Yes. Justification is a legal term used in courts of law. It deals with the verdict a judge pronounces when a person is declared innocent of the charges brought against him or her. It is the opposite of condemnation. Additionally, because the words just and righteous come from the same Greek word for a person to be justified means that a person is also counted as righteous. The justification involves more than simply pardon or forgiveness. It's a positive declaration that a person is righteous. And then he goes on to say that for some of the Jewish believers, however, justification was also relational. It involved, it revolved around a relationship with God and his covenant. To be justified also meant that a person was counted as a faithful member of God's covenantal community, the family of Abraham. Do you think that we actually are counted as a faithful member of God's family? Or that we're just declared to be innocent. That we're, that we're declared to be just or right 
but that that's not something that really is taking place in us? I don't think God declares us righteous until there is a change within us. When we make that change and get into harmony with him again, then he can declare us righteous. I don't think he's going to declare us righteous if, if there's no change in, in the inner, inner person. So our, our legal system here on this earth is not necessarily a good description of what God, the way God is running his government. It's not enough for us to be declared righteous. The declaration of righteousness or innocence will not take place until after the sealing has happened. Not before. We now still are on probation. So the declaration will come, but cannot come until probation is ended or when the sealing is taken place. Then the declaration will be sent forward that we are in, that we are innocent. No judge would accept an innocence plea until something else takes place first. Nobody would uh, declare anybody righteous who is obviously is is guilty. Yeah. Hopefully not even here on this earth, although we know it can happen, huh? <laughs> he may be, he may be uh, clemency may be given, but he is not declared to be righteous or un- innocent if everything is is shown, is, is proven that he is guilty. No judge can, can make somebody not guilty who is proven to be guilty. So how can God... How can, can it be said that God can do that? Legally, God couldn't do that either. The Jew, go ahead. What happens if you die before the sealing happens? Well, let's talk a little bit. That is the sealing for that person. Well, we're going to talk a little bit today about what actually happens and what God is looking for. Um, the Jews felt that circumcision was something that was necessary to be set right with God or to be justified or to be counted as part of God's family. Now, that's something that's happening physically on the outside. Is that something that God is looking for in his family? Does he need for us to follow a list of rules and have a lot of outward performances and have certain things happen with our bodies for us to be counted as a part of his family? I'm thinking that we might want to think about a bigger picture. If you think about the war that went on in heaven, and we learned about that in Revelation chapter 12, what was that war about? Did it have anything to do with the kind of things that the serpent was talking to Adam and Eve about in, in the Garden of Eden? It was over the character of God. And it was so insidious and so de- so subtle that actually one-third of the loyal angels um, left God and went along with Lucifer. So it's not, it's not things that are necessarily very obvious, but subtle things, just little things. And Lucifer was able to bring the character and the government of God into question in such a way that there were many of the angels that were deceived by that. 
and he comes down to the earth and we hear him we hear him in the garden of even talking to Adam and Eve and he's saying did God really say that you'll die you're not going to die so God is lying there and then in that same interaction we see that God also or that um Satan also is accusing God of withholding something from Adam and Eve that would elevate them, that would cause them advancement and for their good. So God is being looked at here in a way that is contrary to what he really is, as if he's selfish, he's withholding something, he's arbitrary. So we have this controversy that's going on. The war seems to be over the character and government of God, and we are born in the middle of of this dark world where there's all kinds of darkness and it is over that very thing. And it's a world filled with mis- misapprehension about God. What could happen and what can God do to solve that problem? One of my favorite things that I like to um, read every now and again is an article written by um, Ellen White called um, God Made Manifest in Christ. Have you read that article? Many of you have read that article. I I pulled a few things from there today, for today. And it says, Christ came to represent the Father. We behold in him the image of the invisible God. He clothed his divinity with humanity and came to the world that the erroneous ideas that Satan had been the means of creating in the minds of men in regard to the character of God might be removed. We could not behold the glory of God unveiled in Christ and live. But but as he came in the garb of humanity, we may draw nigh to our Redeemer. We are called upon to behold the Lord our Father in the person of his Son. Christ came in the robe of the flesh with his glory subdued in humanity. That lost man might communicate with him and live. Through Christ we may comprehend something of him who is glorious in holiness. Jesus is the mystic ladder by which we may mount to behold the glory of divinity, connecting God and man, earth and heaven. Christ came to save fallen man, and Satan, with fiercest wrath, met him on the field of conflict. For the enemy knew that when divine strength was added to human weakness, man was armed with power and intelligence and could break away from the ca- captivity in which he, was, he had bound him. Satan sought to intercept every ray of light from the throne of God. He sought to cast his shadow across the earth that men might lose the true views of of God's character and that the knowledge of God might become instinct in the earth. He had caused truth of vital importance to be so mingled with air that that it had lost its significance. The law of Jehovah was burdened with needless exactions and traditions, and God was represented as severe, exacting, revengeful, and arbitrary. He was pictured as one who could take pleasure in the sufferings of his creatures. The very attributes that belonged to the character of Satan, the evil one, were represented as belonging to the character of God. Jesus came to teach men of the Father to correctly represent him before the fallen children of the earth. Angels could not fully portray the character of God, but Christ, who was a living impersonation of God, could not fail to accomplish the work. The only way in which he could set and keep men right was to make himself visible and familiar to their eyes. That men might have salvation, he came directly to man and became a partaker of his nature. So we have a a war that's happening over the character in the government of God, and in our minds we're 
full of all kinds of darkness and misunderstandings about God, and, and as a result, we have fear and selfishness. The only way that God could come and repair that damage is by coming to our earth and making himself visible and familiar to our eyes. And in that kind of a way, there's something that needs to be taking place to lead us from this place of darkness and selfishness and fear back into relation with God again. Let's turn over to Monday's lesson. Monday talks about the works of the law. Do we have to perform certain acts or behaviors to get the Holy Spirit to see miracles and to be in God's favor? No. Would someone read for me Galatians 3, verses 1 through 12? Galatians chapter 3. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing? If it really was for nothing, does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand, then, that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, No one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Thank you. So he's talking to the the Galatian people and they had this this group of Jewish leaders that would that came in there and, and were confusing them about exactly what needed to take place. They originally had their eyes turned to the one who was crucified for them, and then they come in and, and convince them that they need to be circumcised. And Paul is saying that they've been bewitched. And I I think that there could be things that we deal with today, too, where we think that there's certain behaviors that we have to do and that to do those behaviors makes us a part of the group or the family. And and maybe as Seventh-day Adventist Christians, we struggle with that in particular because we kind of have a culture to our our religion, don't we? If we actually want a change to take place in our life, we have to have a different way of thinking. Okay, that's the only way we do something different, is if we start thinking different. And God knew that our thinking was all messed up. That's why he came down for us to actually see him. 
Why did he give us scripture so that we could see him 3,000, 2,000 years later? Okay. Why do we have a spirit of prophecy so that we can see him? And the only thing that's going to change us, change our mind, change our actions, is by beholding Jesus. And the only way we can behold him is to spend time in his word, in the spirit of prophecy, looking at Jesus and saying, this is what I want to be like. What are the principles here that he lived by, that I can live by? And it's by beholding that we become changed. Why do we want to become changed? Changed in our behavior or in our thinking? Oh. <laughs> oh, we see a picture of Jesus, and we like what we see, and we want to become what he is, and we're not like him, and so we desire to be like him, and so the heart's desire for what he is is what changes us. And also, we see the path we're taking. We see how hard, you know, we, we try, we know what, like Paul, the very things I want to do, I don't do. The very things I do want to do, I don't do. You see yourself repeatedly falling into that pattern. And, and just like Paul, you say, you know, who can deliver me from this? Because I don't see any changes happening and I see the direction I'm headed. I don't want to head there, but I'm stuck heading there. What can change my direction? And then you see that Jesus changed the direction of other people and showed a different direction in his life. And then you see he may be and is the solution to the change of direction in your life. But the ultimate goal is to have eternal life. Because we can't have eternal life unless we are like him. And so that's why we want to become like him. Well, At least I, I want to have eternal life. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, we're born into sin. We couldn't help it. We, that's right. We're born in a, in a very dark world, and we're born from a fallen mother and a fallen we're father. Nature. That's so right. To be changed in order to have eternal life. This change and this justification—the whole purpose of this—and is not salvation. It's not the reward of heaven. Right. It's all about finding a way to glorify God. That is our whole purpose. It has nothing to do with the reward for us. Our satisfaction, our goal, our reason for existence, for being created, was to bring glory to God. That's the reason why this justification thing was put in place. That's why Christ died on the cross, so that we could once again have glory come to the Father. That's where Lucifer made his mistake. I like your heartfelt thing. In heaven, Lucifer had this. His desire was to glorify God. He gradually just drifted away. Then he discovered this law that nobody else even knew about. And once we become divorced of this concept of a law and just embrace the glory of God, we are on a very good road. I like that. The 23rd Psalm, it says in one translation, lead me on the path that is right for the good of your name. <clears throat> And we're told too that the war, that that the war is over God, and that and in the book of Romans, I believe it says that um, when you're, may you win your case when you take it to court when you're the one being judged and it's 
and the ba- the battle is over God, that He would win. The reason you want to glorify God is because He is so wonderful. <clears throat> like we, you know, put Abraham Lincoln on a pedestal and we say, "Look at what he did, and what a wonderful man he was, and how gracious he was to people." and And the same is true of God. We we see what a wonderful God he is, and we can't help but glorify him and praise him. It comes through our love for him, not because we have to do it, but because we love him so much. And I think we glorify God by allowing him to do what he does so well. I mean, you know, how best to glorify God, but open your heart to his changes, allow his changes. Other people see the day and night difference in the way you are and the way you were, and that glorifies God because it's only through him that that happened. <coughs> what were you going to say? I agree with that. That's right. The title of the lesson of this week is misleading. Justification by faith alone. You read from the quote on Friday from Faith and Works that justification by faith in Christ alone. That's a lot of difference. There is a difference there. That's right, who you have faith in. Why did God give us the law if if the works of the law is not something that can save us? Because that's the principle of all creation. Those are God's foundational principles that he set in operation. What's the law supposed to do? We've talked in this class before about being a diagnostic tool, and that has just opened up my understanding so greatly. Uh, when, I, when I see, like in passages like we're reading today, references to the law, um, thinking of it as this way of us being made aware of that condition that we're in and our, of our great need of God. If we, we can go through life oblivious to that. And um, the law is a tool for that purpose. Yeah, Romans 3, verse 20 says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So it helps us to see that we're sick, doesn't it? It makes us conscious of our, of our sin and shows us our sickness. Uh, yes? To understand that verse from Romans, we need to keep in mind that Paul was speaking to a very legalistic people. Yes, he was. It's the letter of the law, not the principle of the law. And there's a big difference. So he addresses a, a people that were already predetermined or pre, pre, uh, in their thinking. Uh, predisposed. predisposed. Yeah, right. Thank you. I remember a time in my in my Christian walk where I was just wishing that God would send me down some kind of a computer printout. <laughs> just send me down a computer printout with all the different things that you want me to do, and, and I'll do it. <laughs> but really, does that, would something like that ever set the mind right? And the tables of stone with the Ten Commandments on them, that really isn't anything that was going to be able to set the people right either, was it? In fact, those, those commandments, and, and Paul tells us that the end result, I mean, the bottom line of all those commandments is, is love. 
so that that is a summary of of what it's all about love for god and love for each other and that cannot be legalized yes and that's not something that you can just hand over a plaque and say okay here it is it's written down in stone and and have that happen is it if we could think of them as promises and help yeah <laughs> that's right a promise of what god can do for us what we will become but like tim so often mentions um there the law will has another purpose and it's like our guardian it will it will watch over us and protect us when you're a child and and you don't know that you need to brush your teeth then the law that says you have to brush your teeth teeth and the consequences that your parent might give if you don't brush your teeth will maybe save your teeth long enough for the day to come where you will realize you can you need to do them <laughs> you need to brush your teeth so the law has that function as well but it helps us to understand our our condition our sickness the law is like a road map it's like a road map in a sense yes it's not followed you'll get in the ditch <laughs> yeah <laughs> one ditch or the other when we have so close a walk with jesus we don't think about the law. We don't try to keep the law. It is something that will come natural because we are so close to him. He doesn't need the law for himself. So if he is living within us, then we don't think about it. It's just something we do naturally and we don't struggle with. So having salvation not be through the law, your justification is not through the law or through the works of the law, but rather through faith in Christ, does that do away with the law? No. And, and, and I've heard people talk about that, talk about how, like, if you have the kind of picture of God that, that we embrace, a picture of a gracious God, a picture of a God that we don't have to be afraid of, even if we choose to go the wrong way, we still don't have to be afraid of him, that that very thing will lead will lead people to be more careless and and not hold up the standards. Do you find that to be true in your life? Has a right picture of God caused you or a picture of God that that reveals him as being more gracious, more loving, not somebody that we need to be afraid of? Is that something that has caused you to abandon trying to live a life for Christ? Or to be more careless with how you're living your life? No. Just the opposite. I mean, it's not this checklist mentality. It's, it's a make me into something that glorifies you. And because, because of the, the true desire in the heart to, to have that happen, because of the one that you're in the relationship with being so worthy of it, um, through the correct picture. Yeah. That's what I found too. I might do the same things that I did before whenever I wanted to have my checklist. <laughs> I might do the same kinds of things, but it's an altogether different reason for why those things are being done. Yeah. And with a greater sense of freedom. I think marriage is a good example of that. 
you could be doing all the right things, you know, being married. You could not run around, you know, you could come home from work every night and do your chores around the house and take care of everything and pay the bills. But in your heart, you could be essentially roommates. You know, when you really, really love somebody, it's a joy to do what pleases them. It's a joy to make them happy, to meet their needs, to enjoy their company, to devote your energy and time exclusively to that person and not be trying to, you know, give out your time to other people. You could be doing the same thing, but the, the whole motivation is different and the result and the, um, the end result of that is totally different. You know, and I think one of the reasons God gave us marriage was to help us understand the difference between duty and heart love that produces the actual same result. I mean, you know, you're actually doing the same thing, but for a whole different reason with a whole different result. And that's not something that can be forced, is it? It's something that comes from love. If we would use some different words, justification, sanctification, these words kind of leave me cold. Me too. I'm brought up with them. And if we could, instead of using uh, justification, use the words put right. For example, uh, in the 11th verse of the third chapter of Galatians, it says, Now it's clear that no one is put right with God by means of the law. Does that, is that, doesn't that make more sense than to say, you're justified? Now, what the justification means, different things to different people. That's right. But more simple language that is a little clearer sometimes lights the bulb up. I, I like those simple words, too. I like the words set right and kept right. Those are, are words that you can wrap your mind around. <laughs> I know the, the words justification, sanctification, glorification, propitiation, those kind of things. When I was first... An Adventist, and I was trying to study the quarterly and reading that kind of stuff. I was just ready to throw that quarterly away <laughs> because I didn't know what any of it meant. <laughs> so, what is God really looking for? I like Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. It says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him? to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today. And then Micah chapter 6, verse 8, it says, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Those are the kinds of things that, that stone with a bunch of rules written on it can't make happen. None of those things that God is really looking for, he can't command them. He can't make them happen by force or manipulation in any kind of a way. So therefore, God has to do something to lead us to love, devotion, and relationship. Uh, Tim has also compared that, that it's like a prescription. If you follow this prescription these things will happen instead of commands. Yeah, it's, it's a prescription that God gives us of how to live a holy life, how to glorify and honor him. That's right. And how, and how is it that that takes place? How does God lead us to that place? By, by first loving us. We are drawn to him because he loved us first. <laughs> 
Yeah, love begets love, right? <laughs> he loves us. Pardon? It's a daily process. And and like um, like you said back there, it's something that happens as we spend time every day with our God, as we behold Him. But At, another important aspect is never come to the point where we we think we have attained perfection are no longer in need of looking at that set of rules, that set of Ten Commandments, and think we have it all together. We're never to come to that point where we're self-assured. And I, and I don't believe that a person who is drawing closer to God will come to that place. Yeah. Because the closer you come to Him, the more you see the truth about yourself too, right? <laughs> <laughs> so you never walk away feeling like, "Wow, I've just I'm finally made it. I arrived." <laughs> so the teacher given it is, "It's all about me," and uh, that's the whole focus that we have through this talking about justification. We're worried about me. How am I doing? Am I good enough? Am I going to keep the law? And it's not about me. It's about him. And the same thing in terms of our behavior with other people. It's not about me. It's about how I treat other people because of how their, their uh, needs are, what, what I can do for them. And we get the focus on others instead of ourselves. Then there's n nothing happening. I mean, this isn't a problem. This all melts away. That's right. Because I think even, even salvation can be selfish. See how many people you can step on to get to heaven. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep, that's right. <laughs> and, and really... The but don't we all see how a lot of this talk is about behavior? Let's all have right behavior and we'll be, we'll be saved. Yeah. But that's incorrect. Right. If, if you get it backwards, then your salvation is worthless if you think it's all about keeping commandments and doing right things. As the Bible says, everything flows out of the heart. What you say, what you do, comes from the kind of heart that you have. And if you don't have a right heart, you won't have right behaviors. So you can do right behaviors, but it doesn't change your heart. It's the other way around. Well, Judas is a good example of that. You know, he beheld Christ the same length of time as all the rest of the disciples. He was right next to him, saw everything. But he saw him through his own eyes and through his own heart. And being next to Jesus didn't maybe changed him, maybe made him worse. You know, because he pushed away from what he saw, misinterpreted what he saw, thought he could manipulate what he saw. So I don't know that totally beholding always changes you for good. Sometimes it polarizes. It makes you more towards God or away from him in some examples. Don't love the atheist who does the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Not because there's a heaven here or there's something to be gained at the other end, but it's the right thing to do. But more Christians, it's, I think, to do the right thing because it is the right thing to do. And God wants us to understand the things that we do and to do them because they're right and not because that we're told to do them right. On Tuesday, it says the basis of our justification. There are some interesting things in here that I, I thought... Um, it says, we should not assume that the Jewish Christians were suggesting that faith in Christ was not important. After all, they were believers in Jesus. They all had faith in him. Their behavior showed, however, that they felt faith was not sufficient by itself. It must be supplemented with obedience, as if our obedience adds something to the act of justification itself. Justification, they would have argued, was by both faith and works. 
The way that Paul repeatedly contrasts faith in Christ with the works of the law indicates his strong opposition to this kind of both-and approach. Faith and faith alone is the basis of justification. Did the Jewish people have faith in Christ? Yes, they did. The Jewish Christians? Did, did they have a picture, a right picture of God? What kind of a God were they? Did they have faith in? <laughs> or were they believing in? Arbitrary, vengeful, and severe. Unforgiven. And Paul was fighting against the outworks of all of that, wasn't he? He was fighting against what they were trying to lay on the Gentile believers because it was giving them a wrong view of God, a wrong picture of God. And that's why it was such a bad thing. So these... These um, Jewish Christians did not necessarily have faith or trust or confidence in the true God, in the true picture of God. They were still believing that salvation was only for the Jews. And they were saying these Gentiles must first become Jews before they can have salvation. That's basically what they were saying. Mm -hmm. That's why they wanted them to go through the rite of circumcision to become Jews. Then they're eligible for salvation. Right. That wrong picture of God, Jesus came to justify. Is that right? Right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I like that. Yes. You know, don't you have to look at culturally? Because they were told by God that they were to be circumcised to be part of Abraham's family. That was from God. So now they were having to get their mind around the fact that the good man are wonderful rabbi who we understand to be the son of God had come down and changed the direct word of God which is what Paul was telling them you don't have to do this anymore to be part of God's family yeah there there could have been some that would be a hard shift to make in their thinking wouldn't it the Jews were that bad or that legalistic I mean they were recognizing the cross they were recognizing their salvation with Christ they said you know, to be part of this family, you've got to do this. We are told that circumcision would have never had to happen had they always been faithful. So there must have been a reason. There must have been some reason that for a time circumcision was something that was important for them. But just like the sacrificial system, really it was given to them to teach them bigger things. But it ended up being something that where they were, it was just ceremonies and rituals and things that they went through where they lost the true meaning of it. It was all part of what they had to do, all part of the acts that they had to do in order to be saved. Ken? You know, it seems like, especially as Adventists, we spend an awful lot of time just trying to make sure we have exactly figured out what is right. In other words, we get to the point where we almost worship what is right as opposed to a person who is love. And, you know, personally, I, I feel like it, it's almost like uh, you know, when you're struggling with those things, it, it's almost like being in a, in a fight with somebody who knows judo or or, you know, some of those martial arts that, 
you can put all all the force that you want to in your belief or in your you know the force of your your person you know to to really stand for that and then you just get flipped you know because if you're especially if you're coming at someone who who you may think is not correct or not right and so that's why it's so important you know to just back up a little bit and say it may be right but what does it mean you know what does it mean not only for me but for the person that I deal with I don't know that's just kind of where I'm going with it we, we can definitely get off in a ditch <laughs> I, um, I was thinking about you know how God had given them circumcision and the sacrificial system but throughout the Old Testament even throughout um, God reveals that that uh, non-duty type of following in so many ways. Like even before that um, passage you read from Micah, just prior to it, you know, is with what shall I come before the Lord? What is, what is it you're, you know, the question is what does the Lord require? And, you know, um, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? And, all, you know, throughout the whole Testament, it tells us over and over that's not the point. The point is I want your heart, and I've got to find any way I can to get you pointed in that direction. But it's not what I really want. What I really want is your, um, for, for you to be set back right in the way I intended you to be. But God will use anything that, anything that he can or anything that we need as an emergency measure for the time that we're in, Moni. So if, if we need to have the sacrificial system or we need to have circumcision or anything as a beginning place, he will, he will use that for us. But he's trying to lead us to something that's really way better than all of that. He wants to lead us into a real relationship, a love relationship with himself. Is there anything that we do today as a church? That requires people to be a part of our church, like circumcision back in the Jewish times of the sacrificial. What do, what do we do today? We have a whole set of rules. <laughs> but we have we have some things, don't we? <laughs> you know, like like not smoking, or you know, or being baptized, or even you know the vegetarian diet, or keeping the Sabbath. You know, just there, there is a kind of a way that we're supposed to behave as Adventist people, aren't? Isn't there? If we were actually scrutinized under the twenty-eight fundamental beliefs, how many of us would actually be church members now? Were we volunteers? <laughs> Okay, let's um, let's move on here. Yes, I was thinking a circumcision was probably given to the Jews to help them identify themselves and others identify them when they get into a situation that was culture back then that was paganism that had to do with sexual acts. They would not put themselves in that position. And so it kind of 
possibly was trying to help them know what not to do so that, you know, kind of keep them straight. Because of the time that they were in and the things they were struggling with? Yeah, so it probably just helped them remember where their heart was supposed to be. So once again, God is not just arbitrary doing things. He's, he's doing it for real good purposes. There was a purpose. Exactly. Um, the obedience of faith. Let's look at Wednesday. So what is your understanding of what faith is and, and how is that involved in the whole justification question or in what you, what you see as what God is looking for from his people? Faith is like partnership, partnership with Christ, partnership with God. Okay, partnership with God. Anybody else have a thought? Uh, I think faith is based on trust. We know God so well that we know that whatever he chooses to do for us in our lives, uh, we're safe. He has our back, in other words. Okay, so partnership, trust, any other thoughts? Like Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Mm -hmm. What kind of faith is that, where you would trust him even to kill you if it was for your best good? We, we were talking, or the sermon over at the university church this morning had a little bit of that in it. I, I think faith is also based on experience. How I know that God has been present in my life and led me in the past. Okay. That helps me to know in the times when I can't see him. I have evidence that says he, he has been with me, so I can trust that he will be with me. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace very well model that. But they took it one step further. They, they had total trust and faith in God that he was able to do it, that he would, could do it if he wanted to. But here's where the faith really kicked up a notch. But if he chose not to, still, if all the circumstances fell apart, they were still going to be true to the God that they loved. That's really faith. That's faith, yeah. At what a response to something that God does first. How do we get faith? The last paragraph in Wednesday's lesson is a very good description. Um, Can you read that for us, Tina? It says, A careful examination of Scripture reveals that faith involves not only knowledge about God, but a mental consent or acceptance of that knowledge. Mm -hmm. This is one reason why having an accurate picture of God is so important. Distorted ideas about the character of God actually can make it more difficult to have faith. But an intellectual assent to the gospel is not enough. For in that sense, even the demons believe. True faith also affects the way a person lives. In Romans 1.5, Paul writes about the obedience of faith. Paul's not saying that obedience is the same as faith. He means true faith affects the whole of a person's life, not just the mind. It involves commitment to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as opposed to just a list of rules. Faith is as much what we do and how we live and in whom we trust as it is in what we believe. That is a good paragraph. There's a sentence in there that I think we should reword, though. That one that says distorted ideas about the character of God can actually make it more difficult to have faith. Really, distorted ideas about the character of God make it impossible for us to have faith. Not just more difficult, but impossible. You cannot trust a God that that you don't really understand a God that is severe or arbitrary or exacting. We can't, we can't trust that kind of God. So those distorted ideas are really critical, and, and they will get in the way of us 
having faith or trust or belief in God. Originally, faith is a gift from God. Yeah, right. It is a gift. Right. If you think of faith as, as being trust or confidence in God, then that only can happen through evidence given. It's not even safe for you to trust somebody that you don't know. And God is not asking us to trust him without knowing him. So it wouldn't be a leap in the dark. Because like we've talked about, he gives us a lot of evidence in his word about how he moves about. And especially in the life and the death of Jesus. And and that evidence, as we look at that and behold that day by day, that is that is something that we can ground our faith on or our trust I agree that faith is a gift, just like confession is a gift. Repentance is also a gift from God. Repentance? Yeah, it's a gift from God. Everything, yeah. We can't do anything for ourselves. There's no way we can bring ourselves from darkness to light. There's no way we can change our own minds or or bring about any kind of healing. He, He gives it to us if we will receive it. We have to exercise it for it to grow. Right. Yeah. And and that's where we have the verses that talk about, um, let's see. about In James, where it talked about Abraham, and it said that his faith made his, or his obedience or his works made his faith perfect. And, and it's just like that in any relationship. The more you move forward and, and the more you act in a loving kind of way or you, you exercise trust and you see that, that it, the one that you're trusting really was trustworthy, the more that that trust grows, right? So it's like that with any relationship. The more we move forward in God's ways, the more we're convinced of how right they were. We say, oh, wow, he was really right. This is something that really was just exactly what God described. And so our faith continues to grow, our trust in God grows. So does faith promote sin? Run out of time here. We'll try to wrap up Thursday's part. Does it really? Does knowing the truth about God um, and how He alone can save your mind leave you to live that lawless life? Well, we talked about that a little bit. When you understand the goodness of God and how free you are, that He's not arbitrary, exacting, severe, and vengeful, does that lead you to be careless with how you live your life? Why should we be concerned with how we live our lives? Because it's a reflection of who we believe in. I mean, people observe how we live our lives, and it reflects who we believe in, who is the God that we believe in. And, and our, and, yeah, and, and our life, we hope that our life will be something that reflects the goodness of God, so we can be a testimony to his goodness here on this earth. But despite that, um, even, even outside of that, in any kind of a relationship, with your relationships here on the earth, if you're careless and you have lazy behavior, will it affect your human relationships? Mm-hmm. Yes. It does, doesn't it? So would it, would it affect your relationship with God if you're careless, lazy, thoughtless, selfish, if you don't put forth the time to, to come and, and talk with him and listen to him talk with you? 
If you become careless about your relationship with God, will that make a difference? I used to think that um, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain was about cursing and so on. Then later on I began to realize that thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain means you shouldn't say you're a Christian if you're not. It would be like saying I'm married but I'm running around on my husband. So basically I'm taking his name in vain because I'm not really his wife. That's right. <laughs> we, are, we are free to walk away from God though, aren't we? We actually can walk away from God and do that without fear that he will punish us or do something to hurt us or cause us to suffer. But if we choose to be careless in that relationship with God, is it God's fault that we're making ourselves lawless or loveless? Just like in any other human relationship, when you're careless, it will affect the relationship. When you're careless in your relationship with God, it's not God's fault that you become a different kind of a person that doesn't love. Paul's description of his union with Christ. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Here's my paraphrase, and we'll close on this. A day came when I realized through the law just how sick I was. That realization caused me to give up the idea that there was anything I could do to fix what was wrong with me. When that realization came to me, I turned my mind to God. Seeing the life and death of Christ has led me to understand the goodness and love and wisdom of my God. Everything is now changed. It is a new life. The old me is gone. Now I have an entire new mindset towards God. Now the life I live day by day I live because of the trust, confidence, faith I have in God as revealed by his Son the one who loved me and gave himself for me. I'll never again live a life centered in keeping a list of rules or regulations. If my mind could be set right through rules and regulations, there would be no need for Christ to have died. In fact, he wouldn't have even needed to live. None of that law centered life for me. I loved because I was first loved. And I want that to be the experience for all of us, is that we... We have a real relationship with God, and our minds are set right with God. We trust him because he's trustworthy. Let's have a prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for our lesson today, and thank you for um, the Sabbath school class and all the participation. We pray that you would help us to have a relationship with you. We pray that you would help us to see you as you really are so that we can be set right and kept right. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for your participation today.